Well, good afternoon, everyone from here in London. And I'm absolutely delighted to have uh, with us today for this FS Club webinar, uh, a, a dear friend of mine, Sarah Goddard, who's Secretary General of Amice. Uh, Sarah is going to be talking to us about passion and purpose, uh, what EU insurance mutuals and cooperatives have been doing well during COVID-19. Uh, she's dialing in actually from Dublin, but is normally based in Brussels uh, as part of our continuing outreach uh, post-Brexit uh, to the rest of the world uh, from the, uh, the center of the world here in the United Kingdom. Uh, anyway, uh, you'll all know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it really is a privilege to be able to introduce these webinars because of our sponsors. We have one of the nicest and most tolerant group of sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And today, uh, very much of the finance area, but also, and I think one of the things that's definitely gonna come across today is the element of social purpose. Uh, I wrote a book uh, post the financial crisis in 2009, published really within six months of the collapse of RBS. And one of the points I made in there that in my opinion, one of the greatest causes of the financial crisis had been the loss of demutualization. In fact, I, sorry, loss of mutualization. I called it deluded demutualization. And I think Sarah's gonna be touching on many aspects of that today and showing that it can be done and done well. Now, my job, as you know, is to get out of the way and let you hear from our expert. And I'll do so in just a moment. If I can just remind you of a few things. Firstly, yes, folks, the slides uh, are available and they're in fact already posted in the chat room and on the website. Yes, there is a recording and it will be going up in approximately 48 hours. And yes, we would love you to ask questions, but could you please use the GoToWebinar question facility uh, on the panel that you have? I'm here with you. Uh, and those of you who send me texts and emails, it's all very kind, uh, but I won't be looking at it until afterwards. So uh, let's have those questions, comments, and observations to, to me via the chat facility. And I will feed them in to the conversation with Sarah that will begin uh, at, uh, at half two. Anyway, uh, that's all I've got to say because I'm as excited as you are. Sarah, the floor is very much yours. Hi there, Mike. Thanks so much for inviting me to, to join you today in the FS Club. And it's, yeah, it's nice to be in contact with people around the world. I know that you get people who are gathering um, from all across the, the, the globe. Um, just to say, I will be focusing on Europe, um, EU. Bear in mind, though, that um, we do have a UK member still that joined us when the UK was still part of the EU. So I will be bringing up some bits and pieces that are UK focused, too. Um, but it's lovely to be here um, and great to be connecting with you again in the FS Club. So um, as you can see, everybody, passion and purpose. This is what I'll be talking about um, and what we've been doing and what we've been seeing our members doing to support their members, which is what we generally call the policyholders, during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, it's, if we could move on to the next slide, um, I would like just to ask you, first of all, a very interesting question, which is how well has the insurance industry responded to the COVID-19 crisis? Um, I know that there's uh, quite a lot that's going on at the moment. If you could please select out of these four, because um, I don't think we want to get a, an average answer from this. We want to know whether the industry is above the scale or below the scale as far as the median is concerned. Um, Great, suspect... Sarah. Well, the, the, the FS Club audience is ever swift. Over half the over 60 percent 
over 70% of the audience have now voted. Give me just a second to leave it open a couple more seconds and I'll show you the results. Thank you. Okay, well, we're well over the 80% mark, so I'm going to share those results with you. And as you can see here, uh, nearly half the audience think poorly. Um, wow. On the other hand, adequately well, very well. Uh, so, uh, but but, so, but four percent yeah. poorly. Anyway, back to you, well, Sarah. It means that we're definitely um, more than sixty percent think that the industry has been below where it should be. Um, my view, and I, I hope that I'm not too biased in this, is that there's been a lot that's been going on, um, and this is what I've seen from the the mutual cooperatives specifically which may inform you of things that haven't been hitting the headlines so much, which haven't been there at the, the higher levels. Now, having said that, I think one of the things that's important is that we understand what the mutual structure itself is. So what I've done today is show you the mutual structure, what that is within the context of Europe, where that moves into the social economy agenda and what social economy is about. And then we'll go into exactly what our insurers have been doing well and what I suspect the future holds from that. So if we could move to the next slide. Um, the problem with the mutual structure is that there is not a consistent type of mutual or recognition of mutual across Europe. This creates problems. This creates problems in all sorts of ways because what is recognized as a mutual in one country uh, will be recognized as a general insurer in another country. What we've tried to do with our sister organization, ICMIF, which is a global federation, is identify those insurers in Europe that have the values um, and may be part of a larger mutual group um, to be able to try to get some uh, good information and data around what we um, what we see as being the, the, the impact and the size of the industry. So. What that leads us to is finding a way of being identified, being able to identify something as a mutual insurer. And you'll see this. There are five mutual characteristics. The first ones is that they are private legal entities, not necessarily um, recognized as being a mutual legal entity, but they are under a, a, a private end, a private legal entity structure. They are not for profit. Now, the not-for-profit doesn't necessarily mean that they don't make profits. It's that they don't distribute profits in the same way as a, a, a listed company. So the profits may be retained in various ways. Um, this is coming into our point five. It may be through own funds, developing products which are of need uh, or by request of their members, but those which uh, maybe would be more onerous to be provided by the conventional market, um, providing discounts, rebates, all sorts of other um, benefits to their members. And then in a, a larger socially environment, they tend to be democratically govern governed and importantly, they are solidarity based. So the members the policyholders are the owners, and these are the ones that are right in the center of what the mutual is trying to achieve. There are four stakeholders within the mutual that all look into the members. So for the benefit of the members, as I've said, the surplus is used for them. There isn't a dividend into, the external, into an external shareholder. Every member 
is included and participates in a democratic governance. That's a, that, that tends to be one member, one vote. They're involved, therefore, in the overall direction of the mutual. From the market position, the, the mutuals are a significant part of the European market. Not many people seem to, to understand this. Um, they compete and therefore provide competition and therefore less, less, more choice to the policyholder themselves. Sorry, could you go back a, a slide, Mike? I'm just going through the, the four panels. Thank you. Um, because they've got this closer relationship with their policyholders, you'll see that they innovate. Um, they are, they understand very well what the policyholder, the owner, actually needs as far as a, a, an insurance product is concerned. And this can be over a range of all types of products, including um, pensions as well. And they can respond to those needs as, as good as possible. But the other difference that they tend to um, display as a characteristic within the market is this long-term business orientation. So investment behaviors tend to be looking at something over a, a very significant period of time, even if they're involved in short-term business. So um, a, a, a typical non-life mutual insurer will be taking a different attitude towards its investment portfolio than you might see coming through from a, a standard general insurer. And some of that behavior is actually being um, displayed in some of the changes that they've made in their direction um, and in their, their actions over the course of the pandemic. Society is also seen as a significant and important stakeholder for the mutuals, so social responsibility, um, engaging in society, supporting society, um, and also in the relationship with their employees to ensure that there's um, long-term stability for their employees. And again, I'll be able to give you an example or two of that when we go further through. Um, and from an economy perspective, that seen as because of the social responsibility, they're also seen as stable. We saw a big increase in in the uptake of insurance with mutuals post the financial crisis. Um, the market penetration deepened considerably in Europe. Um, and uh, some of those who are have been around the, the insurance market as long as me will remember that in the, the 90s, we were talking about a flight to quality in the London market. We saw something not dissimilar um, at the beginning of the last decade in a flight to quality with the mutual and cooperative market a lot from consumers rather than um, commercial policyholders, as they were looking for somewhere where they felt safe, they felt secure, they felt that they had some control and that there was this longevity of relationship, which meant they didn't have the worries about would their policy pay out at some point in time. Um, and again, if we could move on to the next one, we get that coming through. Thank you. Oh. So if we look at what the size of the mutual and cooperative marketplace uh, or market share is at the moment in Europe. Um, you can see that overall, there's almost a third of European insurance is, is transacted with mutual or cooperative insurers. Um, that insurance is mainly non-life, but there's a significant, a quarter of the life market is there. Uh, what we haven't included is pensions. Pensions are significant in certain markets as well within Europe. Um, the penetration is different depending on the country, um, but you'll see from the, the graph I put there on the right, these are actually not just the top 10 
markets by market share in Europe for mutuals and cooperatives. These are the top 10 in the world. So there is significant penetration in a number of significant European economies. Uh, that, as I say, has been a, a trend that's been increasing over the 10 years from 2007 to, to the date of this, 2017. That in that year meant that the assets under management were $3.5 trillion. This is seen as a, obviously a, an important amount of investment to help secure development within the European economy um, overall. The number of policyholders was over 430 million. And, you know, we're, we're talking about more than 450,000 employees. So there is a significant impact that the mutual and cooperative insurers have within the markets. There, in my experience, and I have to say that I was as guilty as this as, as many others many years ago, um, the view is that the mutuals tend to be the small, very specific organizations which are looking at a very um, uh, small part of the market or are very focused on specific lines of business. Um, that is true for some, absolutely. Uh, we see small mutuals in the Netherlands, for example, that are focused on one, one particular crop. However, if you look at the mutual and cooperatives in the top 10, in fact, I was looking the other day at um, the, the top 20 um, insurers in Europe, and something like 40% of them are mutuals. Some of the biggest names, some of the top 10 in the world are actually of mutual structure. So that means that we have a very diverse community. Some of those will be looking at um, international and global issues. A lot of them will be looking at very small local issues, but the whole amount is covered by the mutuals. Again, close, as close as they are to their policyholders, even with the large ones because of the way they tend to be structured, we see a great understanding between the needs of the policyholder, the control of the policyholder, and understanding how that can be uh, moved into areas of of risk reduction as well as pure insurance policies. And this, again, is a move that we've seen where our members are looking very much at life from the prevention angle as well as from the restitution angle. Um, there are a number of, of activities they've been involved in and continue to be involved in at European level and with, with local communities. And then you know, all the, the range in between, for example, city resilience for crop protection. So protection is a very important part of what the mutuals are offering to their policyholders. Um, if we could move on, please, Michael, that would be great. Thank you. Um, but part of this is this embeddedness in the social economy. And I wanted to just give a, a quick explanation to everybody joining us on what the social economy actually is, because again, this is a, it's a very diverse group. It's everything from people who are, um, looking at local disability issues to financial services, um, and across a whole panoply of activities. And that it has to be areas of commonality in order to be part of the social economy. So you will see there that um, the individual, whether that be the consumer or the individual in a legal sense, um, 
is given primacy within the model. Um, this is something which is a democratic model. It's voluntary. It's open. Um, and it looks at in making sure that the individual member's interest is embedded within a social interest at the same time. Uh, social economy organizations are not part of the, of the governmental or administrative environment. So they're separate from, from the policymakers, um, but engaged with the policymakers themselves. Um, to the benefit of the individual, it's about trying to ensure sustainability, solidarity, um, providing innovation because of the understanding of where those requirements are. Um, and then looking at ensuring that there is a strong f future within that model. The good thing about social or the, the more recent changes on the social economy side um, are that there is now an EU um, interparliamentary group on social economy, which is great. It means that the policymakers, the, um, the parliament itself is now engaged in seeing this as one of the fundamental areas where there will be a regrowth of the European model, of the EU model, and that those players, such as the mutuals and the cooperatives, which we're representing at Amice, are core within that, that change forward. So let's move on now to where, where the mutuals and cooperatives have actually been doing well. And we've, we've asked this question of our members, and we've had, uh, we've had the most astonishing answers from right the way across Europe. Um, and this has been, this has been a program that we've been engaged on in Amice from March. So you know, we, we now have more than 10 months of data on what's been going on. Information. This isn't really data. Um, this is where it's making a real change to people. I mentioned earlier on that one of our members is a, a UK association. Um, which is the Association of Financial Mutuals. Now, they are small mutuals in the UK. Uh, what's been very interesting seeing how they are developing is that they are going from strength to strength at the moment. They have so many um, members, policyholders wanting to join, extending what they're doing with, uh, with their mutuals, um, and they're seeing exponential growth currently. Um, and their, their CEO, Martin Shaw, asked his members, so these are all, as you can see on the side, these are all the, the small mutuals from, and some of them not so small, from around um, the UK as to what they've been doing um, and how it's made a difference to, um, to, to their, their members and their, their local society. And you'll see everything from the top right-hand corner, pay care, making food donations to a local um, homeless sh shelter, VDS providing 100 hours of free online training so that their members can help their clients, getting bikes for disabled, gallery, get, guaranteeing people employment so that there weren't uses of, of any furlough schemes um, and that they were give, and giving donations to health-related causes. Um, a lot of what you can see on this slide is reflected on what's been going on elsewhere in, in Europe. And it's, it's really been going on from day one. So if we could move to the next slide, these, um, the, the organization on the left, Mutual Medica, is a Spanish mutual and they have reinvested 200 
million into um, COVID support and, and prevention. Uh, you may not be aware, but in Spain, there's been a big, um, there was a, a big, the biggest life insurance policy ever that was created in Spain um, among the Spanish insurance uh, market and mutuals in particular, the ones that I'm focusing on, um, was a free policy to all frontline healthcare workers. So if anybody um, became infected and had to take time off, they were given coverage. If anybody unfortunately lost their lost their lives, there was a there was a sum of money that would go to their next of kin. Um, that's just a, a tip of the iceberg as to what's been going on there. We've seen um, we've seen a number of moves such as uh, premiums being um, taken down to the absolute legal minimum, so that people could still be covered for various classes of business, for example, for motor. Um, but at the same time, um, they were being given as uh, they were being asked for as little as possible in a period of time when they they weren't actually able to use their vehicles. As an example, you'll see on the right hand side, local Tapiola is a big Finnish insurer. Um, and you can see some of the, the moves that they've been making to support their customers. Um, so they were looking at flexible payments. Um, another thing that you'll see there uh, that has been echoed in a number of countries is where the insurers as investors or owners of real estate have seen that the businesses that are inside their properties have been having problems because of the COVID crisis, that they've not been able to reopen shops or restaurants or barbers or whatever it happens to be, that they've been given either rent reductions or complete rent holidays. That's been happening through 2020 and into 2021. So wherever these supports can be given to try to help with the cash flow issues um, and the, if you like, the, the financial um, pressures that are being put on, in particular the SMEs, but not just the SMEs themselves, they've been involved. Um, what you can see is that also on this slide that the um, trying to bring in the idea of of providing services and facilities that will help people actually cope with their own personal um, involvement in the pandemic. There are a number of apps, platforms, supports that have been um, distributed in many, many EU countries, not just in, in many cases to their own members, but have been made freely available to society at large. So that whether it's people needing to speak to um, uh, mental health counsellors, uh, involvements with the Red Cross, all of this has been um, provided by a, a number of our members in a number of countries. Uh, the other thing that was very clear in the um, opening part of the pandemic was the amount of support that was being given into into the front line and into into health facilities. That was in the way of of equipment, of cash where it was needed, of personnel, so medically qualified personnel that maybe were within the the mutual cooperative, but within the insurer, were being allowed if they wanted to to go onto the front line itself um, still being paid their full pay and given extra protection themselves in their own insurances from their employers but actually able to contribute directly into when the first wave and the second wave were coming through um, if we could move on again that would be great thanks mike 
Um, I focused in on Achmea. This is probably a name that you know well. You may not be aware that it is within our mutual and cooperative family. What Achmea did, and this is the left-hand um, graphic, it's a, a press release of um, an initiative that it led back in April. I'm sorry, it's, it hasn't come through very well. Um, but as a large investor, Achmea decided to bring together a force to um, ensure that pharmaceutical companies actually cooperated in the development of the of vaccines for coronavirus. So it was actively using its um, influence as a large investor to move that forward into something that would come to market and come to us as quickly as possible and not be something where the and, and try to open up the opportunities of the pharmaceutical companies actually cooperating together rather than trying to close the barriers between their R&D departments. And you'll see on the right hand side there um, where Achmea had had made its own statements to how it was going to what its commitments were to the combating of COVID-19. So you have both the, the medical combating Achmea, as an example, was one of those those insurers that released its um, medical staff into the front line where they where they felt like that they could make a difference and they they were comfortable about being released into it. Um, they also obviously uh, were encouraging the pharmaceutical companies, very strongly encouraging the pharmaceutical companies um, to to get together to make sure that vaccines were available as soon as possible. Um, they were looking at various ways and developing products to help with financial problems that were being held by, that were being brought about by their, well, sorry, being experienced by their customers. And they were also looking at how they could help their own staff. So this far, this very quick transition into a working from home environment those obviously have transitioned back at times and now back into working from home. We're all in different stages of, of lockdown or prevention from, from going into offices, but making sure that, that when people were working from home, that they had good working conditions, that it was clear to them that they had still the 34 hour standard working hours rather than the possibility of being asked to do more because of the working from home. The, then there was the these sort of like these, if you like, almost spot products that were coming through. So um, continuity of care, contributions for care providers. There were products that were being developed as well, um, where people who were volunteering were being given um, extra uh, extra cover free of charge. So on the next slide, though, we now have then these three general areas where we have seen and we've been representing to the European institutions what our members have been doing well. And I do hasten to add, um, I'm not saying that a lot of these weren't undertaken as well by by other types of insurers. Uh, the, the headlines about the non-property damage business interruption cases, some of the issues around travel claims, some of the issues around credit insurance, absolutely I understand them. Um, and that they have been taking a lot of um, of uh, sort of like the, the gaze away from what else has been done. 
the NPD um, BI is is a very difficult environment and a very difficult question, which obviously is the one that the courts are dealing with. But if we look at what in general we have seen as being the, the overall categories for policyholder support. So it's premium rebates or holidays where the risks have changed due to governmental decisions. Now, I would say with that, because there's some criticism coming from time to time, um, that there haven't always been holidays or rebates um, in where people, as a, as a good example, haven't been able to use their cars due to lockdown, where they haven't been allowed to, to go outside. Um, what's very interesting on that is that it's one of those areas where the risk is probably changing. The motor risk is changing. In fact, that has been proven in certain countries during the summer. So some of the insurers, we've, we've had we've had conversations with some of our members about this, have taken the decision that rather than give rebates or holidays at the point that the lockdowns were happening, that that will be amalgamated into what happens on motor renewal or on an extension of coverage once they've got a much better handle on what the actual overall um, one-year life of the policy and the overall um, book has been doing over that period of time. Um, I mentioned again that there's been extensions of insurance cover free for volunteers, again, in a number of countries. The Netherlands has been leading on this. Um, and claims filings have been an area where there's been a lot of work to ensure that it's as easy as possible for customers to be able to make their, make their, make their filings and get claims payments as swiftly as possible particularly um, in that SME sector. And it's been kind of interesting talking to some of the insurers where, for example, they've been using drone technology to be able to go and, and, and make assessments as to what the level of loss actually is in environments where it would not be for people, for their own staff's um, health and safety, and it would imperil them if they went out in person. So they're finding these innovative ways of being able to deal with what we're seen as being barriers. Online medical advice services have been absolutely vital. Uh, I'm sure that all of us um, who are on this webinar today have either directly or indirectly known of people who had to avail of this. But being able to provide them free of charge very quickly with the relevant people to be able to allay fears, make diagnoses, make recommendations on treatment has been really important. Um, with the release of surpluses, it's worth mentioning here that uh, the mutual and cooperative sector tends to have a higher solvency level um, because it's got a naturally more sort of long term and maybe more cautious view of making sure it's got this stability year on year on year on year on year. Um, but in these circumstances, there have been surplus releases. So that where policyholders and healthcare providers have found that they've been in 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 challenging situations with with lack of income or with um, with the sort of financial um, pathway that's been going through, then they've been released to try to keep that stability for those particular sectors of their members. Premiums have been waived on liability insurance in certain circumstances, and there's been a big focus on having flexible payments for those smaller entities, again, either through release surpluses or through delaying premiums or through saying we will give you a, a period of time in which we will not be expecting more than the absolute minimum that is required um, by law. 
on the wider society, the supporting the healthcare systems was fundamental in the first wave. Uh, seeing places being transformed, um, uh, buildings being repurposed into um, almost field hospitals with the the large mutual and the smaller mutual healthcare um, insurers in particular, bringing in swathes of equipment, swathes of staff, swathes of PPE, um, and making sure that the there was funding there to um, allow the medical experts um, go in and be able to engage as quickly as possible with those with the greatest needs. There was also a lot of work that was being done and contributions made into social projects um, and the medical research, whether that be for for virus itself or for the COVID-19 vaccine, or whether it be for some of the other long-term health effects. And it's, it's something to bear in mind that the health insurers um, from spring last year have already been, already were putting into place their thinking on what is going to be the other impacts of COVID-19 as far as society is concerned, because we're looking at those sort of those consequential, maybe morbidity with other types of, of, of sickness where people were not consulting under their medical cover, um, where we'll see maybe a, an increase in uh, certain types of cancer and those structures are already being put into place to deal with the the indirect medical consequences, which are likely to be fairly significant for a number of countries. Um, one of the things that the European Union did was um, issue social bonds to help with the provision of healthcare um, and health insurance. And our members were very early to invest in those bonds because they saw them as being for the greater good of, of the European uh, individual and the European whole as well. So there was significant investment in those, um, particularly from the Nordic and Benelux countries. Um, but at the National Solidarity Fund and frontline actors, we're talking about Médecins Sans Frontières, Red Cross. I can give you examples that stretch from from Finland and Sweden in the north down to Italy in the south, um, across the east and west of the whole of the EU, um, about the the support and the funding that was going into the Red the National Red Cross, for example, setting up helplines with them, um, looking at, at how the mental crisis that was that was envisaged from lockdown would be developed through um, at risk groups have been um, coming into people's sort of gaze recently. But from March onwards and still now, they've been looked at very strongly to support. So whether it's refuges, places of safety for people who are um, in dangerous environments and couldn't get away, they've been supported. Um, again, many of our members put together uh, big programs of of buying and distributing technology to um, the children of people who were in the most impoverished parts of their country so that they had access to online education, um, providing platforms to put citizens together with volunteers um, and providing ways that technology can work through. So finally, with the um, support for employees, we had that swift adoption of work from home, as I said, 
a lot of them put in no furlough policies. And we've seen, for example, in France, that there has now been an active commitment from the mutual sector to increase the number of staff in the sector and to increase the number of apprentices. 2,000 new apprentices in insurance are going to be employed in France um, to ensure that there are opportunities, employment opportunities for young people and that we can carry on um, providing the support into the longer term, which takes us to our longer term side. So um, I hope that's shown you that within our, our social economy role and in general, uh, we ask key stakeholders within, as mutual insurers into the revival of the economy. That's been through investment and it's been through um, actual engagement and activity. We look at sustainability and that is seen as being, as being key and that is seen from the European aspect as being what is going to bring through into whatever the new Europe develops into. We're involved in shared resilience solutions on a public-private partnership environment. So whether that be um, for the next European pandemic re, um, whether that's going to be for other, what could be global impacts. Um, when Michael and I were talking earlier on, we were talking about um, cyber as one of those. But we do know that our relationship means that we can see what the socioeconomic needs are very quickly and respond to them. Interestingly, um, at the online Davos forum, which I'm very, I'm, I'm delighted that you guys aren't actually watching that and watching us instead today. Well, I hope you're still watching us. Um, but um, Klaus Schwab is, um, again, uh, highlighting stakeholder capitalism. Um, and he said just yesterday, this quote, that you know, companies which were committed to the stakeholder concept have performed much better because they've invested in the long-term vi um, vitality of the company. That is what mutuality and cooper cooperatives are about. That's actually the key of their model and that convergence that there will be between business and civil society, which at the moment seems to be the kind of the, the structure that a lot of the, um, the forward thinkers are promoting. It's not a new one. I mean, mutuals have been around for hundreds of years. But it's bringing it. We seem to be going around in this circle of the, the future looks like it will be the structure which a third of European insurance has been anyway. So having heard that, I would like to ask you to um, to poll again to give me your, your thoughts on how well you believe the European insurance mutuals and cooperatives have responded to this crisis. So, Mike, over to you, please. That's right. The poll's up there and running. Uh, we've just as ever, uh, they're so fast off the buttons here at uh, FS Club. Uh, over half the audience has voted. Uh, we won't have quite as much time for Q&A as I'd hope, folks, but we'll oh, try my and get in. Uh, so we've just got uh, three quarters of the audience voting. I'm now going to share the results. Ah, and, yay! And there you can see you that swung audience great. opinion about your sector, Sarah, which Strangely, I think it was something you were trying to do, <laughs> and um, I think it's well, great. I, yeah, I was hoping just to, I mean, it, it, I, I remember, like, for example, years back, there was, uh, when I was in a different role, um, it, there was somebody I was talking to, he was a travel insurer, who said, you always hear the, you know, where things go wrong, but you never hear where things go right. Um, that is so and true. there's a lot that's been going right. And, and I'd agree with you, having had the opportunity, the nice opportunity to work with uh, quite a few insurance mutuals, but also uh, the building society movement um, and the credit unions, they have very different cultures. Uh, they do yeah. live and breathe this uh, stakeholder uh, and member uh, area. 
Anyway, we've got a lot of questions in very little time. Uh, so a quick one from uh, Robert Woodthorpe Brown. Uh, is Amiche sharing these examples of best practice, uh, assuming to hope to encourage a race to the top amongst uh, members? Yes, well, what we've been doing is a, a number of initiatives, actually, because we have uh, been sharing them on social media as well so that we can that best practice can be um, distributed to the world. We don't think this is only only for the benefit of mutuals and cooperatives. We, we, we're not we're not trying to put a barrier around it. So we've been doing a lot in that. And actually, when there was a best practice uh, work being done by the European Commission, where they, they put out financial services best practice. We were deeply involved in that and the um, the publication that came out of that to try to um, make sure that there were a, appropriate measures that could be taken by insurers but would be always in the policyholders' best interest. So we have been sharing that um, and then within the membership as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mohammed Iqbal Asaria is curious, are, are there any signs of the, the demutualization trend being reversed in the EU or the UK? And could technology help in creating virtual mutuals? Uh, now, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know how much under the regulatory environment um, a virtual mutual as such would be acceptable. There have been there has been some growth in the UK in recent years, but there's also been some demutualization. Um, so I think one of the things that uh, is important to see is where it actually makes sense. I mean, we're, there is still a number of very, very, very small mutuals in Europe that are probably likely to, at some point in time, because of the regulatory burden, um, likely to go into into bigger groups or to maybe um, amalgamate. As far as um, new startups are concerned, we're not seeing much of that, but we're not seeing that in insurance in general. Bob McDowell is curious that um, a, gener a generation or so of the finance sector went through a spate of demutualizations. Uh, what are the challenges to remutualization? I mean, particularly as a as a trade body, you've got an interest in encouraging the growth of the sector. Um, and I'm curious, are there are there distinctions here? You know, what are, what are you lobbying for at the moment to break down barriers to mutualization? Well, I mean, one of the big barriers, obviously, is the fact that every country looks at mutual uh, a mutual as a different entity and deals with it differently legally. So, um, for example, uh, you do have um, insurance mutuals permissible in Belgian law, but there's no other type of mutual that's permissible in Belgian law. Where I'm sitting here in Ireland, in fact, we, we have a couple of mutuals, but they come under different legislation completely. So um, that that patchy landscape, um, is one which which creates problems. However, I mean, in recent years, we've seen uh, new legislation put in place by two EU member states um, to uh, to recognise mutual insurance as a separate legal entity. And we've been working very strongly on the Solvency II 2020 review under the proportionality environment to have that nature, the mutual nature, being taken as the nature part of the nature scale and complexity. Because of this relationship, because of the way that the that the funds are dealt with, um, because of the way that there's a closeness to the to the policyholder and that they are the beneficiary, and some of that work um, hopefully will come through to to something that we see as being uh, you know a a more uh, fairer fairer environment looking at mutuals, but that's so, our uh, biggest uh, barrier. Yeah. 
Well, in a parochial Brexit way, one therefore would anticipate if this is an area that hasn't really been equivalent in the first place, or we are likely to see more distinctions, at least between the UK and the EU, I guess. Um, just a, an interesting one, a, a nice hard-nosed question here from Mark Johnson. How have all these nice added benefits provided to the policyholders hit the bottom line and requirements for capital? Uh, and has this by any chance resulted in an increase in policyholders uh, during the COVID period? An increase in the number of policyholders. I mean, I could, I, that I couldn't tell you because we haven't got the stats from the COVID period. Um, as far as hitting the capital is concerned, well, I mean, it, because it's been generally being done for the, the policyholders themselves and they are the owners of the capital, if you like, then it's a balance. Yeah. That's a good point. And it, it is astonishing your figures there of having nearly, you know, 500 million policyholders and, yeah. and a half a million employees. That's pretty impressive. Uh, those are pretty impressive numbers that we, we often ignore as not real finance. It's just sort of a, a small little area. And it's clearly not. Uh, Mark's also curious, do you have any examples of where UK mutuals work differently in a negative way, perhaps, or no? I haven't come across any of those, but I suppose um, uh, work differently in a negative way. Um, I, I Well, first of all, I'd be kind of surprised. Um, no, just, I, it depends on how I, I might be. Sorry, I'm not being very co coherent, but that's because I'm trying to work out exactly what the question means. Um, no, just, is that where it's an, an open question? Yeah, no. Just curious if you had a negative example. In the time available, yeah. I've got a really nice one I'd like to close on, if that's okay, uh, because we have run over a bit. Um, it's again from Bob McDowell. Uh, Bob says the attributes of social responsibility change over time and generations, and I think I'd agree with Bob um, on that. In that we've seen even the nature of some of the mutuals that were formed in in the old days of the late 1800s and 1900s have faded away, the friendly societies or brotherhoods and things like that. So how volatile is social responsibility and the ability of mutuals to respond to the changes? That, again, is actually quite localized. Mm -hmm. So um, um, the, I think that what, what we've seen in the past 10 months is that um, that volatility is something which which we recognize but isn't something that's that's measurable at the moment of course the difference now is that if we go back to you know, when a lot of those and, and and a lot of the friendlies are still around actually but when we go back to those early days um, we didn't have to measure things quite as much so there, there's probably it's going to be interesting to see if we can find a, a way of of being able to to bring measurements in that could actually begin to give us something that's much more um, predictive around that. I mean, if you look at the, the work that's being done at the moment on measuring sustainability, and sustainability is going beyond things like climate change into, it has the possibility to go into social um, volatility. It would be interesting to see if we could move, move that into more of a sustainability agenda as well, because that's about the long term. Well, Sarah, it's been really great. You're, you're running an amazing organization in a hardly hidden, but often ignored and I think extremely unfairly sector, which has delivered over generations, uh, centuries even, uh, great good for society. And it's great to have uh, an example of this sector uh, pulling out uh, as we have this global crisis and delivering 
what, what it's meant to do, which is shared benefits amongst the members. Um, there are many tensions in that area, I know, but I'm glad that you're sharing a good news story, and that is, you're so correct. It's something we do uh, far too frequently, and it's great to have one today, so thank you. And you certainly did sway the audience. If you can give me just a quick minute, I've got three rounds of thanks. Uh, firstly, as ever, uh, our sponsors, you are fantastic, and I hope that you've taken away some interesting ideas and uh, not to overlook the mutual sector as quite a significant sector for many of the uh, services uh, and products that you provide. Um, I would also like to thank you, the audience, uh, again, as ever, very good at uh, getting in your Q&A. I will uh, be sending all those uh, comments and questions to Sarah with your emails so she can get back to you personally if she'd like to. But a reminder that we've got quite a bit happening. Uh, tomorrow, we've got a, a center web play for all those members who are part of the Employee Share Ownership Program. Uh, and on Friday, a fascinating session with Dietro Fola on fully grown, why a stagnant economy is a sign of success. And I think that's going to be thrilling. As ever, go to the website and check things out. But Sarah, we've known each other many years. Uh, yes. And, uh, and you and your husband and I have uh, spent many evenings in Dublin and on the continent, uh, most enjoyably chatting about all of these issues. Absolutely. I was really delighted you took the time today to share it with our audience. Uh, and a good news story in this time is something we all need. Unfortunately, I can't give you a good news applause uh, because the technology <laughs> and everybody being at home. But I have brought my little Korean karmic clapper uh, and provide <laughs> airsoft's applause uh, to say thank you very much. Uh, Thank for you, Michael. Sharing with our crowd what's going on in your organization and amongst your many, many members. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Good to see you again. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to to show what they're up to. I think it's, it makes a difference. Thank you.